Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with a special guest. Her name is Marcy Resendez. She's a registered nurse, and she's also the author of her book, If the Brain Could Stop What the Eyes Have Seen, A Nurse's Perspective on PTSD. In the book, Marcy recounts the traumatic events that led to her diagnosis, why she hadn't recognized her affliction, even though she is an ER nurse and a mental health nurse. And finally, how she's overcome PTSD and lives with it and manages it day to day. In this podcast episode, we talk about how as healthcare providers, you know, we sometimes go above and beyond almost to the detriment of our own well-being in ways that we can start protecting ourselves against mental illness and burnout and overwhelm through Marcy's experiences. So grab your drink of choice and join us. Welcome to the show, Marcy. I'm so happy that you're here. I feel so honored that you're here because I think this conversation, for one thing, will add value to listeners, but I'm hoping to bring more attention to your story, to your book, and hoping to help healthcare providers where they're at through it. So if you can, could you just share a little bit with us about who you are? I'm a local registered nurse. Um, I'm a mom of uh, three children married. (laughs) And uh, it's basically me. (laughs) So your children are married? My children? No, they're 18, 16, 7. They're young. (laughs) Okay, okay. Really cool. So you're also a writer and a published author now? You'll have difficulty saying that. But yes, I am a published (laughs) author. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, own it. Because um, it's awesome. My book's on its way. I haven't read it yet, but uh, I'm really excited to learn more about it and happy to chat with you before I get it so that I can, I just kind of know what to expect and more, I, I think, 
from what I'm reading in the reviews, the book sounds awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about the book, which is basically your story as well, in a way. Um, So could you share with us about your book? Well, I have the cover here. And it's called If the Brain Could Stop What the Eyes Have Seen, A Nurse's Perspective on PTSD. Um, In 2019, I developed PTSD. I didn't know that I had PTSD or that I was sick. I was working in a local ER and have worked in many ERs and for the over the past 22 years of nursing kind of worked rehabilitation for a while and then got into you know evolving my nursing career and ended up in the ER and loved it worked as the mental health nurse in um, the local hospital and also in that you still did the traumas and everything else if there was no mental health patients in the unit. So kind of had two hats and um, had a major trauma come in one afternoon shift. And uh, basically over time, it just never left. And I was having dreams and I thought it was normal. You know, nurses, we hear call bells, we hear telephones in our sleep. But I was having some vivid nightmares of, and it's a little graphic, but it's a sink, like Mm -hmm. one of those big industrial sinks flowing blood wow! and it kept overflowing and um, in, uh, overflowing out of the sink, like almost like the sink was plugged mm-hmm. and it would flow into a black hole that just never got any bigger. And it just kept going and going and going. So my sleep really got affected, probably was sleeping maybe four hours a day, if that, mm-hmm. you know, and then in that trying to be a mom, get the kids to school, trying to prepare for your next shift, the yeah. anxi- anxiety builds up. And you just keep plugging away because you don't know that you're sick and you don't know that anything's going because you think you're functioning quite well. Right. But uh, it all kind of came to a head uh, January the 2nd into the 3rd was uh, of 2019. Okay. I went off. I made a net error um, on January the 2nd. And uh, went to the doctors, got diagnosed with the flu. And she said, you're off for 10 days. So I thought that that would be amazing because I'd be able to sleep for those 10 days and have my little break energy, get myself back back together. But the nightmares persisted, found that I was very frozen. Mm. And I, I just hung out on the couch. Um, Then when the work was coming back, like I was going to be going back to work on uh, the 12th. I um, was fearful and I said, mm. I couldn't go back. I saw wrong. I, I've never really feared going to work. Like with the stuff that we see, I, you know, I love my job. I love my job. I love being a nurse. That's the only thing I could ever view myself being, but I was terrified and crying and uh, very, very overwhelmed. Wow. So I went back in for a follow-up at the nurse practitioner and I let it out first time ever telling um, people that I've been having these nightmares for quite a while. And I said to her, I said, can you just give me something to help me sleep? I said, the sink just keeps overflowing with blood and I can't sleep. And she looked at me, she hadn't even sat down yet. And she said, you have PTSD and you're off for three months. And that was, that took the wind out of my sails. I was done. 
I, I said, well, and the first thing out of my mouth after she told me I had PTSD, I said, who's going to take care of my patients? And she said, a nurse that's not sick. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. You know, you worry about other people so much and we don't take care of ourselves. Yeah, we almost um, don't even question. It sounded like you didn't, like you said, you just kept plugging away. You didn't even question the recurring nightmares, right? Like you, you didn't, I mean, it wasn't, it was new to you, I guess, but it was like, you just kept plugging away, plugging away. So they, I found it interesting that it was the flu at first that that that's what was uh, diagnosed, but they didn't know, but okay, because I had, I had understood that before, but I didn't know that they didn't know about the nightmares then at that time, right? Because you just had disclosed that the second time. Yeah. And I just thought I was like, I was overwhelmed with the flu. I had had that the flu, basically, my children had it over the Christmas. And then I went back after my Christmas holidays to work. And then I started getting sick. But of course, you know, you have to do your shifts or you don't get your holiday pay. So I kept plugging away. (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) Because, mm -hmm. you know, nurses will will go in with a limb and just to get holiday pay so (laughs) right yeah and that's a whole other issue uh, yeah yeah I said you know it's one of those things keep plugging away and and you think I'm tough I can get through it I have a day off coming and I'll be okay yeah but I wasn't yeah and that's totally relatable like people think that they we basically work towards that day off that weekend off and we we ignore ourselves along the way because we're just aiming for that finish line and like you said we just think things will get better just by having time off but what you're sharing is that when you step out of the environment even then sometimes like it didn't leave you right that and i find it interesting because i i like you said and especially in your case working in the er you would have seen so much and it was this particular situation and it's not like one is more significant than the other or anything like that it's just it, it you just never know what will just hit you a certain way what traumatic experience might do that right and it almost yeah. sticks with you like um and i've seen so many traumatic things like every day you see something traumatic come in but it was just that one that that stuck um and it stuck before you know like I ended up having to go into a coroner's inquest for this trauma Mm -hmm. and that was another big thing because um you know along with this trauma this coroner's inquest you know you you're always rethinking, did I, you know, and I was only the triage nurse for that tra- that trauma. I didn't actually, like, oh. do anything other than removing the patient from the car. Wow. And it had that, like, that impact. But you are the first person who sees, mm-hmm. who sees the patient at that point, exactly. right, in their worst state, in a way. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us, a little bit more about as much as you can in your own words through your own experiences, because I know you're you're not a psychologist either. But uh, post traumatic stress disorder is very common among the nursing profession. Um, but you know, there's things like burnout that we experience as well, and that's partly why this podcast started was to help people prevent burnout, knowing the fact that burnout can lead to further mental illness. Right. So, can you tell us just what? PTSD consists of like when you heard the nurse practitioner say to you you have PTSD did you know what that meant at that point well you always relate PTSD to veterans 
and you you hear you hear it talked a lot about you know EMS fire policing. We don't hear about it as much with nursing because mm-hmm. there's this expectation that nurses are to go in with a smile on their face, and we just do the job. We get to the nitty gritty and take care of people, which it's what we do. It's what we do, but there's, um, we were actually included into the PTSD legislation in December, 2017. Oh, and I, I don't think a lot of people really know that, that nurses are covered with PTSD legislation now. And that was one thing I, I found as I researched. And the biggest thing for me is like, I never wrote, I never made it out like I was going to write a book. I was journaling just on scrap pieces of paper to try to uh, get my thoughts out because I didn't have any other way of expressing it. You know, I think a lot of us, we don't know what's wrong. We have these thoughts. It's that stigma of, well, I don't want to let somebody know because it can't be PTSD, right? So I related a lot to veterans once I found out what it was, you know, and being the mental health nurse, I did know about PTSD, but I didn't realize you only need to, you only really need to meet one criteria in the DSM-5. Which is? It's the mental health diagnosis. Okay. PTSD. Okay, got you. um, That's where um, you only actually have to meet one criteria of it. So there could be some hypervigilance. There could be like the freeze aspect to the flight aspect. Um, okay. You know, you get overwhelmed, that kind of thing too. Are the nightmares um, part of that too, so Mercy? Nightmares are. Yeah. They are a part of that as well. So in your specific case, yes. in your situation, you experienced nightmares, lack of sleep. Were you like yes. depletion? Actually, is that? I met all of the criteria except for two aspects of the PTSD criteria. And I basically had seen a, psych, uh, a counselor. Um, and the counselor said, oh, well, you don't have PTSD because the trauma didn't happen to you. Okay. And I said, okay, but the doctor says I do. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she said, no, no, you don't. So when the doctors she pulled up the dsm assessment on uh online and she did it the nurse practitioner did it in front of me mm-hmm. and she said you met all but two and i said well then i guess i don't have it and she says no no you have to meet one wow <laughs> you have to meet one criteria that well. you do and um you know, in that process uh they were wanting me to um possibly go up to homewood for a 56 day program for first responders. Um, They do a special program for PTSD. I also had to contact WSIB and go through them. Mm. WSIB said like she had linked, actually the nurse practitioner had linked me up with a psychiatrist and WSIB said, no, they wanted to do psychologists. So I did meet with, psychiatrist they said maintain your medications that we have prescribed and uh, you should be okay but when I went to the psychologist that was when I really got the insight about PTSD and she actually had me do two assessments one about it was some questions about the trauma 
and then they have you do how you feel about it now. And uh, the scoring, it gives you a point for each answer. So mm -hmm. I, do you think about it a little bit? Is it overwhelming? Is it, you know, whatever you score. Um, so I scored, I think it was a 40, I can't remember exactly right offhand, but I think it was a 54 on my today and like a 45 or 43 on my initial. And I thought, okay, I did really good. And she said, no, you need, if you're over 30, you fit the criteria for PTSD. Wow. It was confirmed. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask you, were you accepting, like, did it take you a while to accept that you had it? Or did you, were you relieved in a way by somebody telling you that this is actually why you're feeling the way you feel? Oh, no, I fought it tooth and nail. There was no way I was PTSD. No. I, there was really? no way I fought it. I, for a good three months. Yeah. Wow. So initially I was taken off for two. I was taken off for two and it took me three months to realize that, yes, I actually have something wrong with me. Oh, it's almost like, I mean, this, there's stigma associated, right, with, with PTSD and with like pretty much every mental health illness when you think about it. So do you think that was in part part of your resistance to to it or did you were you just concerned that you wouldn't be able to practice like what what was going on yeah the major part was the fact that I felt like I had lost all my power I felt like I was broken and I very much relay it to, I relay myself to a bird with a broken wing <laughs> and it was like well broken wing is useless they're not gonna do anything they're not going anywhere because they can't fly and like my husband um kind of gave me a kick in the butt told me I couldn't stay on my couch for my entire time and that was about I think that was about 11 days in or so he said you need to do something you've been on the couch for the last 11 days I know you had the flu but now you got PTSD and we need to get you moving you know, you never want to tell somebody like the worst was standing, sitting outside in my car outside of the hospital that I work at and having to go into the place where you work to tell them that you cannot work because you're sick. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the worst thing because you see all these nurses functioning and you think, well, they're all functioning fine. Why am I like, and I always picture like I got hit by a truck. Mm -hmm. And the way I explain mm -hmm. it in the book, is, um, I got hit by a truck and the driver really, really was a bad driver because he kept running over me frequently <laughs> and backing up and run over me again and back up. And that's how you feel because it's like, mm -hmm. you're just in a hole and you just, you got to find your way out. And if you don't, you feel like you're going to die. Yeah. And then did you struggle with I think that's, you've touched on two really big points there. Um, comparison, you know, it's so, uh, we, we fall into that where we assume everybody else is okay because they're showing up to work and they're, they're doing it. And I know I've had conversations with other healthcare providers who feel very similar. And then when you actually have an honest conversation and you're like, actually, I'm not okay, I'm going through something and you have that trusted person you could go to, whether you work with them or not, or they're in healthcare in some way. It's it's quite healing almost, I find, to have those connections where, yeah, being not okay is okay in a way, right? And it validates how you're feeling and um, 
just the work you're doing to get back to it. So that that's huge. And uh, I'm so glad that you didn't let that stop you. And then the other thing I was going to mention was guilt. I know for me, just to call in sick, I feel so guilty. Uh, you know, it's not that I'm so egotistical to think I'm the only one who can provide this level of care for this. It's not about that. It's just, I feel like I've let people down, you know, um, whether it's, you know, staff, you know, the team, and also the patients, especially if, you know, working in physio, it's a little different than nursing, because we have the consistent caseload, you know, so it's a rapport there as well that we're fortunate to have. Um, But yeah, so guilt is another thing. And I think, like you said, just having to show up and say, you know, I'm not okay, I need some time. How was that met? Did you were you did you feel supported? I like I felt guilty. I felt very guilty. I felt guilty going to the grocery store because if somebody sees me at the grocery store, they're going to think, well, she's doing fine. She's walking. She's talking. She's out. She's, you know, she's not having to come to work and face what we all have to face. And, you know, well, she's able to, she's getting paid. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Those, that narrative runs in our head. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, well, she's getting paid. She has money to go grocery shopping. And, you know, I had to have my therapist kind of my psychotherapist kind of tell me like, Marcy, you have to feed your children. It's okay to go out to the grocery store. And I remember going out to the grocery store and sure enough, if I didn't run into the HR manager (laughs) right at the grocery store, that's like the worst fear. (laughs) Remember, I will never forget that day because I was in, you know, and he looked at me and he said, are you okay? And I said, I'm, I'm okay. Like I was there with my daughter. My daughter is very, very supportive. I could not ask for better children and husband because uh, they always gave me that encouragement that I needed. Because even being out, like you see patients in the grocery store, you see families that you've taken care of their loved ones. And, you know, they all identify you as a nurse. Because that's who you are. And it's like you almost have to take off that nurse's cap and be like, I'm a nurse, but I'm a patient right now. And Mm -hmm. nurses are not good patients. (laughs) We're we're, we're pretty awful. So I've heard. You know, I kept going into the psychotherapist's office and saying, I'm okay, I can go back. And she's like, no, no, you know, you're not doing this. And um, it took me a long time to be able to even be able to focus on my homework from psychotherapy also, because you do get a lot of homework that you have to focus on and you have to maintain it. And still to this day, I do it in my head. My ABCs are always... You know, if you have a trigger, if you have a day where you're feeling down, you have to say, what is that activating event? What is my belief? And what is the consequences? And what you can say to get yourself out of that. And I I do do this daily. Wow. It's almost now, like it's three years now since I was diagnosed. Right. And um, I still do it daily. Because you're still going to hit triggers. You know, I did have a panic attack the other day. And it Mm -hmm. was something mentioned to me just out of the blue. And I never, I haven't had a panic attack and I don't know how long. Wow. And it's just, it could be the smallest of things. 
that triggers you and you're like, well, what the heck did that do? Like I've been doing so well, but it's what you said before. It's okay not to be okay. And you just have to say to the, your people around you, I'm not okay today, but you know, you're able to plug through, you're able to do what you need to do to get through your day. But sometimes you just need to take that pause and we don't pause as nurses. So that pause is very important. Yeah, that pause can be transformative. And it's literally like maybe minutes, you know, it's very small in the grand scheme of the day. I think it's powerful what you said about about the story you shared about going to the grocery store. And I think what we don't realize as providers, because we identify as providers in healthcare, right? We identify by that, by our titles in a way, is that just doing basic activities to keep us like functioning day to day are so critical and important. And I think that's part of the healing. And it's, you know, whereas work is supposed to be more of a secondary thing, right? It's not supposed to necessarily be the primary thing, you know, primary is like family, you know, those relationships, taking care of ourselves, our self care and honoring ourselves, um, and just getting on day to day with our own personal lives. But it's so it fascinates me that as providers, we just think that we should be able to just skip all of that (laughs) and get right back to work, which is basically the mindset and a lot of people who are burning out and or experiencing more severe mental illness and just um, are unaware of it, perhaps. I still to this day, struggle for self care. I struggle. I, um, I struggle daily to take off that nurse's cap, especially with the pandemic that we're going through. My mm-hmm. dad always tells me, says, as soon as you're done your last midnight shift, you need to take off that nurse's cap. And we had a conversation the other day and I said to him, it's harder done, or it's easier said than done, just because it's what you identify as. Mm-hmm. And when you in, you know, yes, I identify as a mother and I identify as a wife too, but you get, you're that hundred percent in when you're at work. Mm-hmm. And I think with nurses, we work as a block. So we're doing our four 12 hour shifts and it takes you sometimes a day or two days to shut it off. And then you're back three days later right back into the thick of it. And so it does make it very difficult. I find just with talking with colleagues lately, they're not shutting it off as easy either. And it's taking them sometimes up to four, sometimes all five days that they're just at home. And like a lot of people are saying they're sleeping much more or spending more time in bed, Mm -hmm. you know, we're also very in tune to the COVID and, and um, not wanting to be exposed. So we're not really going anywhere, Mm -hmm. but people are struggling trying to get back to their normal day-to-day life because, you know, and then there's the multiple call-ins. That was one agreement that I had to have on my return to work was that I, I wouldn't take call-ins. So I have a do not call, but then the guilt comes again because you know that there's, there's holes or there's mm-hmm. short staff. You want to help your fellow colleagues because you see everyone suffering. But I'm like, you almost have to have a bit of a selfishness and say, sorry, I have a no call. 
Yeah, that's a part of your self care, like you said. So I, I see what you're saying in terms of yeah. your um, your struggle with that because you go back and forth with the guilt of, around it, but it really is part of your self-care. And one of the things I, I try to talk about on this podcast is like there's self-care like at home and personal self-care and stuff, but there's also self-care at work too that we don't, again, <laughs> myself included, you know, we're not as committed to, or we kind of let go and we don't, uh, we're not as serious about it as we should be. You know, and that's what I was going to say. So you you were diagnosed in 2019. It took you a whole year, right, to to get back, essentially, to get back to work. And it took me a year and two or three days. I can't remember exactly. My sometimes my memory is still affected. Um, right. Dates, times, numbers, things like that. Um, I still have a bit of a struggle. Um, okay. But yeah, it was a year to get back. And that was a year of weekly therapy. Yeah. Wow. Um between psychotherapist and uh group therapy and constant therapy day to day at home. Mm-hmm. Um I follow an app. It's called CPT. So CPT. cognitive processing therapy. CPT okay. Coach. It's a app and it's amazing. It's amazing. Um gives you all those that book of papers I had and from the beginning is all in my phone now. So I love that. So it's more accessible <laughs> to you, which is great. What if, what if, would you attribute? Clearly, you wrote your book through all of this. That was a big part of your healing. Um, but as well as that, what other things would you say and practices you kind of touched on them have contributed to your healing? It's I can't say like, like, I have to say that it must have been so challenging to get back to work. And I think that just speaks to who you are and how much you really are devoted to your work and your profession and how much you love doing what you do and just finding the way to do it while also preserving your own, your own well-being. I think that's remarkable. There was a period of time and I did not want to go back to work. And I was going to open a coffee shop and I was going to have my own little coffee shop. And, and, um, I, I didn't want to go back. There was no way I was going back. There was no way I was a nurse. I was ready to resign my (laughs) nurse's license and everything and just be like, I'm done. And then it it took me probably about, I would say about nine months of being off. Mm -hmm. It was quite a while. And then I started saying, well, you know, I could go back and then the return to work specialist came on and um, it was a very slow return to work. Like when I went back, I was behind a desk doing some paperwork and stuff and it was two hours a day, twice a week. And for when you're used to working anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day, yeah, two hours, I thought this is going to be nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, what's the point? Yeah. And I'd have, come home and have a cup. I, I would do my two hours and I come home and have a two hour nap. And it was just, um, it took a lot of mental energy because you really don't realize how mentally strong that you have to be through the whole process. Like I, I really focused on my self care. I did a lot of aquafit. Mm. I found the water was, um, honestly the best thing for me. I should have been born a fish. I did, uh, a lot of going to the local uh, park, going to the marina, spending time outside with my kids, um, 
my my brother has a pool yeah so I'd go to his house and go in the pool um water was very much of a healing the other would be music mm. and I am no singer and I I'm not a musician by any means but listening to music and listening to um other people's emotions really brings out a lot in yourself because when I look back on my music choices and what I was listening to, it really evolved and my therapy kind of evolved. Like okay. I listened at the beginning when I was really angry to Dixie Chicks and not ready to meet nice because I was angry. And I think it was more, I was more angry with the diagnosis. And, um, you know, as it, as it evolved, it, my music choices really changed. And my youngest daughter loves the Beatles. Um, Isabella was always walking around singing Beatles songs from movies that she's watched and oh. Bob Marley, Three Birds. And yeah, <laughs> so yeah, then, yeah. you know, near the end, it was more kind of kind of more fluid music and being able to just enjoy life. Like, yeah. and I really didn't think I would ever get to that point. Wow. And then when did you realize, like, this is what matters? Like this right here, just feeling like life again, feeling alive again, feeling hopeful again? Um, it's probably, like I said, it probably took about the, that nine months. And then it was like, all of a sudden it went from my, I, like I had a massive brain fog. Like, mm -hmm. and it's hard to explain, but like, you know how you see it in cartoons and, you know, the storm comes in and everything's dark and, and I never saw color. I really didn't yeah. see color. And, and, um, I remember like I did just generally some, some exposure therapy on my own. Cause my psychotherapist basically said, you need to go and do some exposure therapy, like see how you will react. And I had it set that I was going, if I was going back to nursing, I was going back to the job that I did. Right. And I wasn't taking any anything else. I was going back to the ER. I was going back to the mental health nurse position at the hospital. I wasn't going to take anything else. And, but that's a process also because there's a risk of re-exposure. So the one night I'm in doing the exposure therapy, just seeing, you know, getting familiar with the surroundings again. And I said to, I said to the one nurse, my friend, I said, you guys do something to the lights in this place? And she says, uh -huh. no, why? And even the, even the stacks of paper um, have like a red barcode on them. And I was like, damn, everything is so bright in here. Like my eyes physically hurt. Right. And um, they, they were just, they were kind of laughing at me, not like laughing at me, but just kind of laughing saying, I don't know what you're doing. Like it's always, even the little um, notations on the TV for, um, the CTAS scores for the ambulances mm -hmm. and stuff, like they're blue and red and yellow and green. And, and I'm like, Whoa, they're so bright. And I, I realized when I went back to the psychotherapist, she says, well, you probably have had brain fog and it's clearing. Wow. And so wow. when you start to see color again, then you know that the healing process is coming because wow. I really don't think I saw color. Wow, like that's like that's really moving to me that you were almost and you were so aware of it 
It's just the neurology of all of that too. Like it's just, wow. So the emotional and the physiological and, you know, the chemical components of all of that, just, wow. Yeah. That's the one thing with PTSD is the fact that people, I don't think they realize the physiological part about what happens when you're dealing with mental health. Like I used to get the worst abdominal pain. And I always would get pain in my right side. And I was actually worked up for appendicitis a couple of times because I swore it was appendicitis. And they would, I, all my tests would come back fine and it would be great. And, or if I got anxious, I would have to run to the bathroom and have a bowel movement. And it would just be an instantaneous, like, um, I could have been in the grocery store. I could have been somewhere and something triggers you and you're just like, you know, you just have to go and, or you get the physiological sweats that -hmm. just happen. And you're like, I don't even know what's going on. And it's that fight, fight or freeze. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to, sometimes I left with carts, a cart of groceries and I would just have to get out of the grocery store or, or there was a store in the mall that I used to go to and I'd get in there and I don't know what it was with that store, but I would have to leave. Because wow. I would just get this overwhelmed but panic. And so the physiological part of it is huge. Like like those triggers. I would have never known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's what's interesting to me, and this is my own um, ignorance um, in, tra- in talking about triggers, is I think I've always, now that I'm listening to you, I think I've pretty much assumed that people are aware of their triggers. But you... Are like it's triggers are something you kind of come across that provoke something from you, whether it is emotional, mental, physiological. Like I, it's it sounds like you like you are describing the, the 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 store, and you're like I don't know what it was about the store, and you might not ever know what that is, but you know you've been triggered in some way. And wow. I have gone back to the store, and okay. I am able to shop in there now. And so as the healing comes, those triggers will lessen. And, you know, I have people who are always concerned that they don't want to say something to me because it may trigger me. But honestly, a lot of times, if somebody just said to me, hey, this is going to be here, or this is going to be there, it it allows me time to prepare myself mm-hmm. for that coming. You know, you see something in the paper or you see, you know, something about PTSD and they're like, oh, I don't want to show her that because it might trigger something it's better if someone's just open and talks to you and prepares you for it instead of it's, it's when things come up like a shock, that's when it will blow it out of proportion a bit. Do I know everything that triggers me? No, right. You don't experience it. And then once you experience it, that's when you kick in those ABC sheets, the activating the belief system and the consequence. And then that's when you go through it and work through it. So that's a part of healing and you do it every day. So Marcy, can you, can you go through like an example of that for us? Like, can you, like where you, what, what a, like what a would relate to what B would like, can you walk us through like an actual example? Cause I think that would be really helpful. So it could be something like, um, say if someone's having a conversation and they're very loud, like I always, I always kind of laugh because my, my husband's Portuguese, he's loud and yeah. you know, he'll, he'll be talking or something and, and I'll, it might just send a trigger to me. 
And so the activating event is like, okay, someone's arguing or someone's, you know, my, and that's, that's that loud voice. Right. So the belief is like, okay, something bad is going to happen. Consequences could be your heart rate goes up. Um, You start with, I could start with the abdominal pain. Um, You get nervous. You start to shake. Um, I could have to go have a bowel movement because that's, um, that's how my body seems to react to stress, any stressful situation. Um, So basically then once you get those consequences, then you talk to yourself and you say, well, what is my belief system? Like, and, and what can I do to, to stop this? Well, it's just my husband talking. He's loud. He's, you know, talking on the phone and he's loud and that's what it is. And then you say, well, how can I say this in the future? So you kind of look at it and you say, well, you know, I know that that this is how he talks. I could go in the into the garage or I could go into the bedroom and say, is everything okay? You know, instead of assuming that the negative, oh, okay. Um, you know, another, another situation is like when, when you're driving in the car and when you're driving down the highway and a car is going to pass another car and say it's too close to you or something. Sometimes I would get a response and I would usually say some foul language because that seems to what comes out of my mouth at that that time. (laughs) You and everybody else. (laughs) I I have this thing that if there's ever a car accident as a nurse, I think that everyone knows that I'm a nurse and I just have to stop. Right. So if someone gets in an accident that I'm thinking you're putting me in a situation where I have Mm -hmm. to then do something. Right. So I kind of have a reaction to that. And my kids think it's hilarious when they're in the car and we're driving to the mall or something. They think it's so funny because, oh, there goes mom again, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The activating event in that situation could be something as simple as the car, you know, and that person's choice of passing. And uh, the belief system is, is if I have to stop, then I have to do something to help that person that's in the accident. And my consequences at that point is anger to that person Mm -hmm. that's driving because you're putting me in a situation that could put personally harm me in the future mentally mm-hmm. uh, or physically. Right. So that's the anger, the frustration, you know, foul language. Um, yeah. And then what can I say in the future is, you know, I don't have a big star above my car that says, Hey, you're a nurse. Right. right. <laughs> um, yeah. Ethically, we all have our own ethics of what we would do, but it's like not everybody knows that you're a nurse, even though yeah. you think that you do. Yeah. So for future, you just say, you know, you just stop by, you call 911, you do what you need to do, like to help them do what you can. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like I said, each day is a little struggle. And oh, I love that. Well, thank you for going through that with us. Cause I think that's, that was really helpful. I know for me, I'm just thinking about my own little things and my own little triggers that I, have experienced over the course of, especially the last few years with the pandemic, you know, it's, I never thought I would say few years, but it really, we're really going in that direction now. (laughs) It's not just a year, two years now, like we're going into the third year. And it just, um, I just think it's super resilient of you. I don't know if I have the words even to say how amazing it is that you've returned to work under these circumstances you know, it was already bad in healthcare pre-pandemic. And that was why I started this podcast then, um, feeling like there was a looming shadow over healthcare happening. And, you know, when you just get these feelings, 
And you, you know, as professionals, we want to help, we want to do our part. And so um, I think it's amazing that you've, you've made it back to work and that you're continuing to do the work because you just, you're just so dedicated to that part of your identity as well as, as of being a nurse. Um, can you tell, I know you don't really want to talk, like you're not somebody who really promotes your book too much, but can you, <laughs> why don't you tell us <laughs> about your book? Cause it really was a big part of your healing and, and it stemmed from, from your most painful moments. Well, I like when I started to write, um, I, because they encourage in, in therapy just to write things down, um, you know, I kind of would go through Pinterest and sometimes you would see some different things that just kind of trigger, you know, good in you, like, you know, the, okay, it's not to be, or it's okay not to be okay. Or, um, just different inspirational quotes, thoughts, things like that. And so I started, I stole a bunch of like neon paper from my kid's craft box and I was started writing and, um, and I had these papers all over the house. Like, and my, my husband's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just writing stuff down. Like I'm, I just, and sometimes I would write for like an hour, just odds and end things. Or, you know, you hear something in the news. Like I was very weird in the beginning. Cause I was like addicted to CNN and I would always, <laughs> I would always watch CNN. And so I would write down different things that were happening and I'd write down, you know, I never was a reader, but I would like get books and I would read books. And I, and I remember seeing a guy on NBC news and he was for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And he was a, a gentleman like 90 some years old and had wrote a book. And I thought, geez, I'm going to get his book. So I realized oh. in the library, you can go and get free books and borrow them and bring them back, yeah. which I had never done. <laughs> and I went and found it there and read it. And I was like, this man wrote a book in his 90s. And so as my paper collection kind of grew and I kind of was running out of paper, my oldest son, Nicholas, said to me, you know, mom, I think that this is a book. And I'm like, no. And I went to my mom and dad's and I was reading the stuff that was on the papers. And, you know, they said, write it, do what you need to do. Like, you know, and, and always with that thought that I just thought I, I'm never going to write a book. Like I failed English class <laughs> in college. I had to That's amazing. The, I, I love this. Take, I had to take the remedial English class for my nursing because I didn't pass the test to go into the regular one. And um, so I thought, well, no one's really going to want to read this. And so I started, I actually had the title before. I even uh, wrote anything for the book. Wow. It just came to me and I, and the picture I had in my head the entire wow. time because as nurses, as well, especially during this pandemic, we have to always look smiling eyes, right? Even though we're crying in the, in our hearts, but we're smiling, trying to be positive, trying to bring the positive for these people that are, you know, not seeing their families, not being able to see their loved ones and stuff. So I said, with me, everybody always used to say, you're so cheerful, but I was crying because <laughs> I was suffering. Wow. Yeah. 
So mm. that process was the easy part for me was having the the title and um, the photo because I knew exactly what I wanted. Then my my son laughed at me because he says, you know, they do have computers because I my as my papers kept growing on the counter, <laughs> like put it in the computer. Well, that was hard because I'm not so technically challenged and we we battled it and uh, I did it all on my son's uh, account. Oh, wow. I was going to say, so you you went back and typed everything you wrote? I I started on and so basically I'm like, well, how am I going to start this book, right? Like, what is what's an intro? So I basically started it off life as a nurse, you know? what people see, what people think we they see, you know? So, and then as I wrote it, I would find myself thinking of different patients that I've taken care of in the past, um, different situations, you know, what I would do in those situations, because I didn't, I found that I was very ri- like ritualistic in the way I approach things, you know, working at a small hospital, you do a lot of transfers. So I'd be in the back of an ambulance with a patient and say a little prayer before you go because you got 30 minutes to two hours, depending on what hospital you're going to. And a lot can happen in those times. Like, and it's you and the paramedic in the back and maybe an RT and <laughs> and God, I guess. And God, yeah. Thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I love that. Yeah. That's, that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. You know, one of those things that you just have to really um like I would always pray before I left in my own little head and nobody knew I was doing it but I was like just get us to wherever we're going safe and you know and let me drop this patient off safe right so then I started like when I would get my little irritation moments I was like well what bothers me about the job and in the ER if anyone's ever worked in the ER they have a red phone and that's ambulance dispatch I hate that phone. (laughs) I hate hate the shrill of it. Um, So I wrote about that. I wrote about, you know, the fact of having time off, like those 10 days off sick, you know, and like, oh, I thought it was going to be great. And so I just wrote about my experience, what I did. Um, And then as I wrote, I started writing about like my actual therapy process and what I was focused on and what I had to do. You know, I wrote about the inquest, um, the emotions that are tied to everything, because that's a big thing. Like you think, oh, I'm tough. I've got this. My emotions aren't going to get the best of me. You know, you just brush them off. Well, you can't. Some days are like lay on the floor days. You don't want to move. Or my kids used to laugh because if they saw me with headphones on. They were like, don't bother her. <laughs> yeah. I, would stick I do that a lot. Yep. You, know, you have the music on or you binge watch. Like, I think I binge watched um, a few different shows. Just um, you'd go in the bath, like going in the bathtub. I'd be in the bathtub for hours. Like oh. my husband's like, are you gonna get out anytime soon? I'm like, no, <laughs> no. Like <laughs> um, I wrote also about my really tough points. Like, and I wrote very open and honest, like, and I think that's the best thing that I can say. Like there was a day that I didn't want to wake up and I was in the bathtub probably two hours. Um, I knew that I had some Seroquel in the cupboard, 
And if I got out of the bathtub, I was going to take six of them. And oh my gosh. I didn't want to die. I can honestly say I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to, I just wanted to sleep and I didn't care how long I slept. And probably if I would have taken six, it probably would have done some damage because one, I slept for 18 hours. <laughs> oh my so, goodness. Yeah. Thank yeah. goodness. <laughs> you know? So I, I, I had enough confidence to my husband and I just said, can you please go and take any medications that are in the cupboard out? And I said, cause if I get out of this tub right now, I'm going to take six. And he kind of looks at me and he says, are you being serious? And I'm like, yeah, you know, like I, the one thing I've seen lately is how it there's um, people don't fake depression. And I think that's a huge thing. People don't fake when they're suicidal, mm -hmm. you know, um, they may have the suicidal ideation. They may not have the suicidal acting out behavior attached to it but that thought is the scariest thought that you'll ever have that's why I would so much rather have someone contact me and say hey Marcy I'm really suffering like I need help because that is the darkest feeling that you could ever have in your life that would be like the rock bottom in a way well thankfully though I you had the awareness to know that you were feeling that way right you weren't just kind of like kind of automatic about it. You, you actually had some consciousness around it. And, you know, I feel like your family has just been a huge support and outlet for you as well, because it sounds like you're able to be and say, and, you know, be who you are in front of them as vulnerable as you need to be. Um, and there's, they sound super supportive. Very much so. And, you know, and you get the friends from work who would contact you. There was mm -hmm. some people who didn't contact me, and it's okay. It's okay. You know, this is just starting to open up and the talk is just starting um, with this pandemic and everything. Um, but my coffee buddies, my friends that would give me a call and be like, hey, let's go meet at the Marine and go for a walk. You know, I'm my treat on coffee. What do you want? The ones that brought over, you know, cookies and coffee and we'd sit and have a chat. And those are the most important things that just that connection to know, like, they're not scared of me. The stig did I have stigma? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had, I was in the ER the one day and I had a physician kind of back away from me and knowing that I was off sick with PTSD and, and kind of backed away. And I said, you know, but I look at that situation and I said, you never know what that physician has going on in, his, in their head. Also, there's ways about it, right? Like there's mm -hmm. different ways, things. I just thought at first, I was like, oh man, like, what did I do? Like, you, cause you, everything goes to yourself, right? Cause you're yeah. not, well, I didn't say something wrong, did I? And, but I've, I've really taken it on that each person's got their own battle going on and it just, you have to be open to give them time yeah. to understand where you're at. So your book really, like it documents your, your story like the onset, what your emotions, you know, your day-to-day -day living through all of this, but it also highlights the healing part of it too, right? And it, it's also a resource in that way for others who are experiencing similar? Yes, definitely. Okay. Like, um, I put in a lot about uh, self-care, like basic okay. self-care, what you can do. I also, like I said, I was on Spherical before to help me sleep and to help with my irritability. Because at one point I was just angry, 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 which does come with PTSD. 
I actually didn't get a good effect from the Seroquel that I was on and I stopped taking it. And I, I well, actually at one point I stopped taking all my meds, which is not right. <laughs> you mm-hmm. need to your medications that's yeah, so you're kind there. of you're resistant to them yeah <laughs> Be my own little bit of a doctor so yeah <laughs> I mean you're a nurse yeah and then when you fall when you fall again then you realize that you need it and you know like I said it's okay to do that I do use uh cannabis each night okay interesting and so um you know I was the one that you should never manipulate your medications Mm. Um, but I was still having those nightmares. I was still not able to sleep and, um, I tried it and I slept like a baby. I have never ever slept as well as I sleep now. And I've just oh, wow. maintained it that I eat it once a day, um, before either daytime or nighttime, depending on what shift I'm on before I go to sleep. And I would say that it has definitely improved my ability to function, you know, and knowing about the strains and knowing about what works for you. It is a little bit of a trial and error because you have to, you have to do the research. Mm -hmm. So I, as I manipulated my own medication, then I had to do the whole walk of shame into the psychologist's office (laughs) and talk to my therapist and explain to her what I did. And she looked at me and she says, that's okay. We'll get you a, a cannabis referral. So I got linked up to a cannabis clinic in Toronto and I meet with them every nine months now and they prescription. And so they kind of gave me the education also about, you know, use an Indica that'll help you to settle. I can use it about nine, 10 o'clock at night and I am wide awake at five 30, ready to go in for a day shift with a clear head, feeling good, stable, but if I miss it, I have a, I will have a irritable sleep, maybe not have the best day the next day. Um, mm-hmm. So it's definitely a beneficial medication wow. for me. Yeah. So that's amazing that you found what works for you. And like you said, you were willing to go through the trial and error um, of it and still have that open relationship, I think is so important with the doctors and with the therapists that were involved, right? Because I think sometimes people, uh, patients do that, and they don't, they don't, like, they're not open about it. In my situation as a physio, you know, it's things like, and, and I'm not trying to trivialize anything or minimize anything at all. But in my in my practice, specifically, it's like, you know, in the hospital, when a patient says to me, you know, Jen, I got up, I got up, and I know I wasn't supposed to, but I got up on my own. And, <laughs> and I and I never, and I never say, well, you shouldn't, like, I don't want to hear that you shouldn't do that. What I ask them is, well, how did it go? How was it? You know, because yeah. people have the right to make their own decisions. And if they're aware of the risks, and that, you know, you've you've done your part, um, they're going to make their own decisions at some point, an informed decision. I was just grateful that they they told me, right? Um, because then I could help. And if I didn't recommend it, I could say that and we can talk about that, right? But if I don't know as as their therapist, then I, I won't be able to help them is how it seems. So I, I think it's important. It's also empowering, but it's also important to have that part of empowerment to have that open I think communication and collaboration with your circle. 
Yeah. You just, you need to, you need to let them know, like if you're having a bad day and you need, like, this was my hardest thing is because I thought you just had to stick to your appointments. And my psychotherapist said to me, text me if you need me. And she says, I schedule openings. If we need to do an emergency session, we can put in for an emergency session. If you need 10 minutes just to talk, sometimes you can get talked down in 10 minutes. Like I could be up at a like skyrocket and 10 minutes of just a therapeutic communication with the psychotherapist. She would say, how do you feel now? And I said, well, amazing. Like I feel so much better. So sometimes it's, you can't live in your own head. And I, I still to this day do. And probably should sometimes reach out and not, but it's learning. It's learning. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's going to be like, as much as they say your PTSD is in remission, it's a lifelong battle because, you know, you still have those triggers. Um, You know, I attend my, my group when on my days that I'm available to go, like, say, if I'm not, if I'm off work on a Thursday, then I'll go to PTSD group and it's so beneficial because it's a variety of of people in the group there's veterans there's uh EMS uh dispatch uh police the one group I did attend had fire also and um I'm the only nurse in the group and Mm. the first that was in their group but it brings a whole different view because we're all kind of similar, but our stories are all a little bit different. And with the nurses, I think we are different because we kind of talk from our heart. I've read books from police. I've read books from EMS um, because, you know, you want to support the community. So you buy their books and and read it. And it's always different because they get that trauma, right? (laughs) And they always that you know head-on collision or or this or that and my trauma kind of came from a you know from a little bit of a it was an initial trauma but it was that secondary trauma of the inquest also so it was a longer trauma than just an in like one day Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but I never like people will say Oh, well, you know, my trauma is not that bad. And I did the same thing because I, I see these veterans and, you know, they've been in combat and they've been away from their families. And I'm like, oh man, mine's nothing compared to yours. But each trauma is the same because it's affected you. And that's the biggest thing that I think I could, I would like to get across to people is it doesn't matter if it's just the death of a patient and it's not just the death of a patient. It's you know, a patient who you cared for has passed away and uh, you didn't have control as a nurse. You don't have control over that, you know, and the situation that surrounds it, it can, that can affect you because, you know, you, you try your hardest to save, but you can't. And, you know, so something like that versus a mass casualty, there's nothing different because it's still a trauma. And mm-hmm. I think that if people understand that if they're having symptoms 30 days after that initial trauma, you need to talk to somebody 
you need to talk to somebody before the 30 days because that's when you're going to start to spiral. And it's, um, and they say, if you've had a good debriefing, which I know nurses, we're, we suck at debriefing. We mm. really do. Like, and we, we don't have the formalities. We don't have the, um, let's sit down because you know what, there's always someone that's going to need the toilet or there's always someone that's going to need a pain medication or there's going to be an IV pump that beeps, or, you know, there's going to be a phone call from a family. There's always those different things that take you away from that stop and pause and debrief. The worst thing that someone can do is say, okay, this happened, this happened. Are you okay? Because nine out of 10 times a nurse is going to say, I'm fine. Let me just go back to work and do my job. Because that's what we're there for. Mm-hmm. They don't want to sit down and hash out what's going on. But it's important to do that sit down, to do that discussion so that you can talk about what bothered you in the situation. It doesn't need to be a process thing. It needs to be like, it can't be um, like, oh, well, you shouldn't have been standing there or this person was in the room or that person shouldn't have been there. It can't be a critical thing. It needs to be. You take all the the logistics of nursing out of it and you sit there and talk as people. And that's where I say that a lot of the, the debriefings that like, I've had one debriefing in 23 years. Okay. So this was one of the questions, probably one of the final questions I'm going to ask you, and you're touching on it now that I wanted to talk with you about is how can we make, in your opinion, um, and I have my own opinions too, like this is not, nobody has the answers, all of like not one person has all of the answers to, to help us get through this as, as providers. But I do think that we need to start talking about it more. Um, and that's why I appreciate this conversation so much. So how do you think within the system of healthcare, within our processes, um, how can we better the well-being and nurture and support the well-being of providers in the process? Do you have any, like, have you ever thought about anything that could just make it a little bit better than it is? I think the the one major thing is the, the open communication. Um, nurses are famous for eating their young. Um, okay. And I don't know. I don't know about physio. I don't know about other things, but nurses are famous for eating their young. I think if you are open and you discuss and you say, Hey, I've been doing this for almost 23 years. You can ask questions. No question is a stupid question because it's going to make them stronger for their future. I think if you have that open communication about you know, if, if you're struggling, you need to reach out to somebody. It's, it's a must. It's not Mm -hmm. a choice. It's a must. And I think a forced debriefing with a possible, you know, if there's a psychologist on staff, I think hospitals all need a psychologist on staff. I really believe that they do. For staff. You know, for, for staff available. Yeah. 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 uh, to have that available, um, you know, peer support is good also, um, to have a peer support system because like I said, my coffee buddies, you know, they would, they were all nurses. They would all come over or nurses or there was a clerk also, um, <laughs> but in healthcare, you know, yeah, 
exactly. There's a clerk and there's a few nurses. And, you know, it was one of those things that um, the open communication, you know, I never, ever dreamed of the response that I got writing this book. I've had people like I posted it on social media and the, the impact that people have had has been amazing. Like I sit here in my house and I cry all the time because I'm oh. like, Oh, this is so cute. I love and that. Like, like, oh, you know, mercy. People starting to open up and say, listen, I got diagnosed with PTSD, but I don't know where to go. I didn't know where to go for the whole month. Um, the beginning of my PTSD for one month, I secluded myself in my house. I was terrified to leave my house. I only left for doctor's appointments. I thought if I said anything to anybody about PTSD, they were going to think, well, she's broken and she's done. And that was the hardest month probably in addition to when I felt that I was suicidal. I would say that that was the hardest month of my life because I didn't know where to turn. And as the mental health nurse, I should have known exactly where to go, but I didn't. But you were in and, it. Yeah. And I had to go and pick up a form at the hospital and it was a Monday and it was uh, walking counseling. And I walked in the walking counseling and caught the counselor off guard because she thought I was bringing her a patient, but the patient was me. Mm-hmm. And I think if I didn't do that, that day, um, I don't know if it would have, if it would have turned out the way I did, like, Mm -hmm. but I did that support just by walking counseling once a week, you know, go in, voice my frustrations. Um, I think some people when they're facing mental health struggles, they shut down and they don't talk. And the biggest thing is, is talking, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and saying it is, you know, PTSD is a major impact for first responders and and even the community nowadays because yeah. everybody seen a mental health struggle of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I think the latest I saw was like one in three. It's probably higher than that. Yeah, <laughs> that's reported probably. probably. Yeah, that we're yeah. aware of. And yeah, it's probably it's probably more people affected than one in three. So right. I just. Uh, I think the biggest thing is just being open, like for administration, for managers. Um, if you have, there's so much legislation stuff that I think people, they get tied up and they don't want to get in trouble or they're sued or things like that. And, you know, when you're struggling, that's the least thing on your head. Like you're thinking. You just of, want to be well. You just want to live. You yeah. Just want to function. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. do your job and be calm and go to work. And yeah. and I have no hardships on anything or anyone in this process. Like it's a learning process. And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing is everyone's kept silent for so long with dealing with this um disorder. And I think the biggest thing is just saying, hey, you know, like and I'm proud. I Actually, got this shirt made for Christmas, and it's oh, a PTSD it. awareness. I was wondering about and it. I love. I wear it at work, and uh, it, you know, it's. Um, I'm proud of it. I said I think that if I didn't get diagnosed in 2019, I would have definitely been diagnosed by now. Right. Um, 
with something else from COVID. And mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have had the, the coping mechanisms to make it as far as I have. You know, it's just being open and talking and, and being human. Being human mm-hmm. is a huge, and humans, we're not machines. You can't go 100 miles an hour. Like, you have to slow down. So and I, I think that's where all that that lack of humanity through the in the processing of the processes of things makes it difficult. You know, even in our schooling and our education, we I've never been told that it's okay to show emotion. Never. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would always just try to suppress it. You would put it aside, or you would save it for home, or you would do it where nobody was around. You know, you you would do it. Like you would just keep it to yourself and then you're suffering in a way because of it. Um, and I, I just, I think it's so powerful what you've done. And you'll drive around after work extra just to, to get your mind away from it before you go yeah. home. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a big thing because, you know, when you live close to where you work, Sometimes you don't have that time to kind of desensitize before you walk in and then you blow up as soon as you come in your house and that doesn't do anyone in their house good because they have no idea what you've gone through all day. <laughs> right, right. They're like, oh, yeah. mom's coming in in a room, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I used to do that too. I would take longer commutes or I would find ways to just stay in the car a little bit longer. Um, my commute's a lot shorter now, but when it, when it, I kind, that's what I liked about the, was the decompression on the way home. It was nice. Um, so Marcy, where can people reach out to you, connect with you and buy your book and check it out? Mine's on its way. I know I purchased it from Amazon. It's it's only in paperback form. Is that is that it currently? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I really, um, because I have been working and uh, I haven't really done very much promotion. Um, no. I, do have a, I do have a website and it's Marcy Resendez book.com it's all one word okay um it, it may change your amazon into french so i hope you understand french it, um, it did to mine it did to mine <laughs> so funny set up the account on his um on his laptop and he goes to french he went to french school he's now graduated so Aww. it changes to french i'm really sorry but <laughs> don't try to fix it <laughs> So I am not, I always tell people I am not a promoter. Um, my book is also, so if you go to marcyresendezbook.ca, it's there. Um, it, you can get it there. I also have books in my home um, that I purchased that are here. Uh, I'm on Facebook, just under Marcy Resendez. I have Instagram and I have Twitter. Okay, um, great. Not very good with Instagram and Twitter, but I'm getting there. Okay. What are your handles on Instagram and Twitter? Is it just your name as well? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Made it all. Because what we'll what we'll do is we'll put that in the show notes for people. Just that okay. that's why. <laughs> and your and do you have like an email? That's okay. And like an email address maybe in case. Yep. Email is Marcy Resendez twelve at gmail dot com. Beautiful. And uh, yeah. They can message me and <laughs> go from awesome. there. Well, I, I so deeply, deeply appreciate you being here and sharing your story. And I know um, your underlying um, intention for everything you do is to serve and help. And um, thank you for doing that through your story and through the most 
difficult time in your life. So I, I really appreciate you being here. I just want to thank my publishers who did an amazing, amazing job for me. It's Walkerville Publishing in Windsor. They also have some copies too at their uh, at their store. And uh, they had it published for me within 12 weeks of getting my like, blue binder that sat on my table for six months. So wow. they did an amazing job publishing and it was a very, very smooth process. <laughs> Beautiful. And that that's like a quick turnaround. So that yes. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Marcy. I appreciate it. And I hope we keep in touch. Thank I can't you. wait to read it too, by the way. It's thank on its you. way. It's on its way. <laughs> Have a great day. <laughs> you too. Thanks, Marcy. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jenniferGeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.